on this lovely sunshiny Friday morning. Um, before we dive into our lesson of let us draw near, hold fast, and consider in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, I do want to very, very quickly um, address something in your chapter this week. I don't know if any of you read anything that made you pause and go, huh? Um, I read something in chapter five that made me pause and go, huh? So um, I'm going to go ahead and just take just a minute or two to address it. If you have your books this morning and you would like to look at what I am talking about, um, I'm going to be on page 79. And this is why you have an extra handout this morning. So, um, and believe you me, I have much fear and trembling if there's any time I go, huh, with MacArthur. Um, but having cross-checked myself with my husband and, and my lovely Yvonne and, and thinking through things and be like, okay, am I thinking about this right? Am I, am I viewing this correctly? Um, just some things that might have been confusing in the chapter. So, page 79 um, under guiding, when he's talking about angels, he starts the um, paragraph by saying, the Holy Spirit guides the believer internally while the angels guide the believer externally. I view that as a confusing statement. So, um, and then he goes on. Now, I affirm the story, the story of Philip the evangelist, the angel coming to the Tim, saying the Lord wants you to leave here, go there. Um, absolutely, yes, that absolutely happened. But if you look at the top of page 80, you know, the angel guided Philip out of one ministry into another. But we need to remember the primary um, purpose that we often see with angels is they are a messenger of God. So when an angel appears to Philip, that angel is saying, thus says the Lord. Had Philip not obeyed the word, the words that the angel gave, who is a messenger from God, he would have been disobeying God. So that is a revelation. Philip, God wants you to leave here, go there, Beautiful story of him being able to open up scriptures to the eunuch and God gloriously saving him. So, but that last sentence, angels do the same for us today. I find that to be very confusing. And also we need to keep in mind, this book was written in 1993. So, and later, so this is why, um, number one, I'm trying to keep my thought succinct. And I don't want to spend a ton of time because we got lots of scripture to look at today. But this is why I went ahead. That first sentence, the Holy Spirit guides the believer internally while the angels guide the believer externally. This is why you have, I wanted you to have a whole article to be able to go home, be a Berean, search scripture, think deeply, but also have something ready at your guide. And this is MacArthur later on in his ministry. So um, I'm, I'm just going to read little snippets, but I wanted you to have the whole thing. I'm in the first paragraph. I'm just going to say, the Spirit is not revealing new truth and prophecies to God's people today. Then I'm dropping down to second, 
paragraph. Instead, the Holy Spirit's work always centers on the word of God, dropping down to where it says underneath the spirit illuminates. Divine revelation would be useless to us if we, <clears throat> if we were not able to comprehend it. That is why the Holy Spirit enlightens the minds of believers so that they are unable to understand the truths of scripture and submit to its teachings. So here we see the Holy Spirit's work is always going to be through the written work of God. He illuminates the written word of God. If you flip all the way to back, the back, again, I would encourage you to read this in its entirety, but we just don't have time this morning. So I just want to highlight snippets. Very last paragraph. As believers, we honor the spirit when we honor the scriptures, studying them diligently, applying them carefully, arming our minds with their precepts and embracing their teaching with all our hearts. The spirit has given us the word. He has opened our eyes to understand its vast riches and he empowers its truth in our lives as he conforms us into the image of Christ. So this is how we would say the Holy Spirit works in us internally, okay? I just didn't want this to cause confusion or what is he talking about? Now, later on in his biblical, so that's the addressing the Holy Spirit guides the believers internally. I'm now going to address where he says, while the angels guide the believer externally. I do believe MacArthur shifts his opinion on this because later on in his book, Biblical Doctrines, that's the really big systematic theology book that he wrote. If you have it at home, it's the big white one with gold lettering on the front, okay? Um, because of obvious copyright reasons, I couldn't copy this off to give it all to you, but if you have it at home, it's page... 675. That's how big the book is. That's only like, I think, halfway through. So, but if you want to look it up at home, he has the heading. He's talking about angelology. So he covers, you know, what are angels? What are their ministry? What are they doing today? So in particular, he says towards Christians and angels ministry towards Christians. Okay. So this is his statement. And I believe biblical doctrines was 2019 ish. Look it up, um, <laughs> but much later. So this is exactly what he says. He just has a little paragraph, which we would heartily agree with. Angels minister generally to believers, Hebrews 1.14, which includes rejoicing at a believer's salvation, Luke 15.10, and providing protection. That's in Psalms 34, 35, 91, Matthew 18.10 as will by God. So they're providing protection as will by God. Since the episode of the rich man in Lazarus and Lazarus in Luke 16 is most likely a parable, it should not be used with absolute certainty to argue that angels transport all believers to heaven at death. So that's it. That's all he says. So no more about guiding or anything. So that is why I'm saying I believe he has changed his viewpoint in that point particularly. I do not find in scripture where angels are guiding believers today. 
did God use angels in the New Testament to carry messages to his people or, for instance, Peter getting broke out of prison. I love it. The angel smacks him and says, get up, get your cloak on, we're leaving. Yes, God absolutely did that work. But since the closing of the canon, is God going to send an angel with a message, <laughs> thus says the Lord? No, because it is not needed. We do not have new revelation today because we have the written word of God. So it's just not needed anymore. Now, one quick thing on um, under providing, uh, page 80 and 81. Um, he says at the bottom of page 80, it's possible angels have ministered the same way to us without our knowing it. Hebrews 13.2 says that some have entertained angels without knowing it. And so totally fine with that part. It's this next part that I'm like, mm. and perhaps they have returned the favor. That's a little bit speculative. I absolutely affirm the angels um, entertaining angels unawares. That's, that's Hebrews 13 too. That's absolutely. So again, I went online later on. Um, this is from his commentary on Hebrews 13. Okay. Specifically, he's talking about the phrase for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. It is not given as the basis or motivation for hospitality. We are not to be hospitable because on some occasion we might find ourselves ministering to angels. We are to minister out of brotherly love for the sake of those we help and for God's glory. The point of the second half of verse 2, meaning Hebrews 13, 2, is that we can never know how important and far-reaching a simple act of helpfulness, helpfulness may be. Let me read that again because I messed it up. So the, the main point of the second half of verse 2 is that we can never know how important and far-reaching a simple act of help, helpfulness may be. Oh, pray for me, girls. All right. So I just didn't want you to struggle with confusion on those few things. It does seem as though later on in his ministry, and praise God, that's proof that even John MacArthur can grow and can learn. And he's not infallible, but the word of God is. So even when we're reading somebody as biblical as John MacArthur, we still need to be Bereans. Think through, okay, he is saying this. Can I find it in scripture? Is it backed by scripture? And two, we can praise God. If Johnny Mac can grow, so can I. If somebody as brilliant and intelligent and as knowledgeable of scripture can grow and apply and think it through, so can I. So, um, so those were just a few things that um, I just wanted to address. If you have continuing questions, feel free to Reach out to me, reach out to Yvonne. We'd be happy to talk to you, but we didn't want you to struggle with that, okay? Um, it, it, yeah, it cost me some angst because I'm like, I don't, I don't like this feeling. I don't like this. So um, Yvonne was, was, she did a great job of, number one, calming me down, and then number two, just talking me through. It's just, it's 
so fun. Do y'all have those friends where you're just like, all right, this is where I'm at. What do you think? And then the bouncing back and forth helps you just kind of think it out loud and okay, and you come to a, to a conclusion. That is such a blessing. I would highly encourage it. So, okay, so let's set those things aside. I go ahead and open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. As you're opening it up, um, just thinking through the drawing near, holding fast and considering, I have a story of someone I want to read for you um, as we considered these things and as, as just starting to open our minds towards what scripture as an example of this scripture. It's a gentleman, I'm reading from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you guys have never read through this, I would highly recommend it. I also would highly recommend, I've read the original and I've read the modern English one. I would recommend buying the modern English one. It is a little bit easier to um, absorb. Um, I believe it's published by Banner of Truth. I'm not sure. Um, so, but I want to introduce you to John Bradford. John Bradford was born in Manchester, so this is in England, and educated until he was able to earn a, levy, a living in the secular world, which he did successfully for several years before giving up his business affairs to study the gospel. Bradford left his study of secular law in London to enroll as a divinity student at Cambridge, working so diligently that he was awarded his Master of Arts degree within a year. Immediately after, he was given a fellowship at Pembroke Hall, where Martin Bucer encouraged him to become a preacher. Bradford believed he wasn't educated enough to preach. Well, let's remember, this man practiced law, and yet he didn't think he was educated enough. To which Bucer replied, if you don't have fine white bread, give the poor people barley bread or whatever else the Lord has given you. So do you see what he's saying? Hey, if you can't do the finer things, then at least give them the common basic things of the word. Finally convinced to preach during King Edward's reign, Bradford accepted the degree of deacon from Bishop Ridley. Now remember back then, Bishop was an okay term. Back and forth though but bishop meaning pastor, Ridleyan was licensed to preach and given a position at St. Paul's. For the next three years, Bradford preached the gospel faithfully. He sharply reproved sin, sweetly preached Christ crucified, pithily spoke against heresies and errors, and earnestly persuaded his people to live godly lives. When bloody Queen Mary took the throne, Bradford continued his work. On August 13, 1553, Mr. Bourne, the Bishop of Bath, gave a sermon at St. Paul's Cross in London supporting the return of Catholicism under Bloody Mary. His words so angered the congregation that they threatened to pull him out of the pulpit. The more Bishop Bonner and the mayor of London tried to calm the crowd, the angrier everyone became until Bourne actually began to fear for his life and asked Bradford, so just so you can follow me, Bourne is a Catholic, wants to turn everything because Bloody Mary is a Catholic, wants 
England to go back to Catholicism. So Bourne actually asked Bradford to speak to the people. As soon as Bradford moved to the pulpit, the crowd shouted, Bradford, Bradford, God save your life, Bradford. Bradford calmed the crowd, and soon they all left peaceably for their homes. Even though the mayor and sheriffs were there to see Bourne safely home, he refused to leave the church until Bradford agreed to accompany him. So Bradford walked closely behind Bourne, protecting him from harm with his own body. Three days later, Bradford was summoned to the council and charged with sedition for saving Bourne's life and with illegal preaching, although he had been asked to speak. He was imprisoned for nearly a year and a half until his hearing before the Lord Chancellor in January of 1555. He was offered a pardon if he would recant his Protestant beliefs and rejoin the Catholic Church, as many preachers had already done. On July 29th, the offer was repeated. Bradford urged the council not to condemn the innocent. If they had believed he was guilty, he, they should pass sentence on him. If not, they should set him free. In reply, the chancellor told Bradford that his actions at St. Paul's Cross had been presumptuous and arrogant and that he took it upon himself to lead the people. He was also charged with writing seditious letters. The following day, Thomas Hussey and Dr. Sutton visited Bradford in prison. Both men urged him to request time to discuss his re religious beliefs with learned men, saying that this would remove from him the immediate danger and look good to the council. Bradford refused. That would make pe the people think that I doubt the doctrine, I confess, and I don't doubt it at all. Brought back before the council, which asked him to rejoin the Catholic Church, Bradford replied, Yesterday I said I would never consent to work for the Pope. Today I say the same. He was condemned and returned to prison. All the time Bradford spent in prison, he continued his work, preaching twice a day to the many people allowed to visit him and administering the sacrament, meaning providing communion for his flock. Preaching, reading, and praying occupied his whole life. He only ate one small meal a day, and even then he meditated as he ate. Bradford's keepers thought so highly of him that he was often allowed to leave the prison unescorted to visit sick parishioners on his word that he would return by a certain hour. He was so precise in obeying the terms that he usually arrived back well before his curfew. Bradford was a tall, slender man with an auburn beard. He rarely slept more than four hours a night, preferring to spend his time in writing, preaching, or reading. Once or twice a week, he would visit the common criminals in the prison and give them money to buy food or other comforts. One of his friends once asked Bradford what he would do if he were free. Bradford said he would marry and hide in England while he continued to preach and teach the people. One day in July 1555, the keeper's wife warned Bradford that he was to be burned the following day. Thank God, he replied. I looked forward to this for a long time. The Lord make me worthy. Bradford was transferred to Newgate Prison about 11 or 12 that night, 
The authorities are hoping that no one would be up to see him then. But a crowd of people watched him as he passed, prayed for him, and told him goodbye. His execution was announced for four o'clock the next morning. No one was sure why such an unusual hour was chosen, but if the authorities hoped the hour would discourage a crowd, they were disappointed. The people waited faithfully at Smithfield until Bradford was brought there at nine in the morning, led by an unusually large number of guards. Bradford fell to the ground to say his prayers and then went cheerfully to the stake with John Leaf, a young man of 20. After they had prayed silently for an hour, one of the sheriffs said to Bradford, get up and end this. The press of the crowd is great. So the crowd's pressing in. They both got up. Bradford kissed a piece of the firewood and the stake itself before addressing the crowd. England, he cried, repent of your sins. Beware of idolatry. Beware of false antichrist. See, they don't deceive you. Then he forgave his persecutors, which was often you hear this over and over in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He forgave his persecutors and asked the crowd to pray for him. Turning his head to leave, Bradford told him, Be at peace, brother. We will have a happy supper with the Lord tonight. I almost made it. Both men ended their lives without fear, hoping to attain the prize for which they had long run. So ladies, as we look at our scripture today, just that kind of example of drawing near, holding fast, considering. There is, I didn't see it, I'm sorry. Oh, so I didn't see it, thank you, love. All right, but a sad story, but a triumphant story, and to a God-honoring story. I thought I would make it because he was somebody newer that my heart had not totally attached to, but oh well. All right. Hebrews 10. Let's look down and read our passage together. <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as we're thinking through this beautiful exhortation here in Hebrews, it's helpful for us to kind of get the background, get the feel. What are we talking about? So theologically speaking, scholars generally, generally regard the book of Hebrews to be second in importance only to Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament. 
No other book so eloquently defines Christ as high priest of Christianity, superior to the Aaronic priesthood and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This book presents Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. However, both the authorship and the audience is in question. We do not know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some attribute it to Paul. Others attribute it to Luke, who was a close companion of Paul. Others still to Apollos. We see him in Acts and other places. Some even Clement of Rome. He's one of the first pastors at Rome. But we don't know. And that's okay. We don't have to know. Now, it is a thoroughly, thoroughly Jewish book. So, in the first original manuscript to the Hebrews was not at the top. But in some of the early ma the manuscripts, it was with the subject matter of all of Hebrews, it does seem as that was its intention to lay sweet doctrines out using Old Testament and opening it up. The epistle to the Hebrews is a study in contrast between the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the old covenant given under Moses and the infinitely better provisions of the new covenant offered by the perfect high priest, God's only son, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Included in the better provisions are a better hope, a better testament, better promise, better sacrifice, better substance, better country, better resurrection. Those who belong to the new covenant dwell in a completely new and heavenly atmosphere. They worship a heavenly savior have a heavenly calling, receive a heavenly gift, are citizens of a heavenly country, look forward to a heavenly Jerusalem, and have their very names written in heaven. So these are the beautiful themes of Hebrews. Now, in addition, it may be noted that Timothy had just been released from prison. We find that in chapter 13, and that persecution Persecution was coming, becoming severe. We find that in chapters 10, 12, 13. But all the references to the sacrifices in the priest system are in the present tense, and there's many of them. So it does not seem to indicate that the temple or Jerusalem had been destroyed yet, which that happened in AD 70. So these details suggest a date for the, the writing of this epistle around AD 67 to 69. Now you might be thinking in your head, Rachel, that's great. Why does that matter? Let me tell you, why is knowing the date important? Just so we can get a glimpse of who was in power and what they were facing at that point in time. Nero, a man with light blue eyes, thick neck, protruding stomach, and spindly legs, was a crazed and cruel emperor, a pleasure-driven man who ruled the world by whim and fear. It just goes to show the difference in upbringing makes. Now, I'm, I'm quoting someone, not necessarily me. His mother, the plotting Agrippina, managed to convince her husband, the, current, the emperor Claudius, to adopt her son Nero and put him 
ahead of Claudius's own son, first in line for the throne. Maternal concern was not satisfied. She then murdered Claudius, and Nero ruled the world at a ripe old age of 17. The young Nero, having been tutored by the servile philosopher and pedophile Seneca, was actually repulsed by the death penalty. So when he was younger, he was repulsed by it. But he resourcefully turned this weakness into strength. He eventually had his mother stabbed to death for treason and his wife Octavia beheaded for adultery. The Senate, so the rulers, made thank offerings to the gods for this restoration of public morality. He then, this is an aside, he then had Octavia's head displayed for his mistress, whom years later he kicked to death when she was pregnant. Nero tried to pin the blame for the great fire of Rome in 64 on the city's small, so notice the date, 64. He tried to pin the blame on the Christian community, which he regarded as dissident, distinct group of Jews. So he burned many of them alive. He would have them dressed in shirts, stiffened with wax, and hang them on poles to light his gardens. Historians wrote of the bodies of Christians of both men and women to be piled in the streets. Um, his, history tells us Peter and Paul were said to also have been martyring as a result of this blame. But the rumors persisted that Nero had sung his own poem, The Sack of Troy, while enjoying the bright spectacle he had ignited. So, political turmoil finally forced the troubled emperor to commit suicide. His last words were, what a showman the world is losing in me. Quite the opposite of what we hear from our friend John Bradford. So this, ladies, is the... Um, current events of what's going on when the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. This is what's happening. No wonder they need a letter of encouragement, of stability, of doctrine. There are issues within the church. There are pressures without the church. And this is the kind of chaos into which the writer of Hebrews and his audience is facing. But Whoever the writer is, his theme is very clear. The absolute supremacy of Christ in all things and the absolute hope we can have in him. So this morning, we're going to look at the three lettuces of Hebrews 10. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. Now, I do need to pause here and give credit to where credit is due. I listened to a wonderful series by, it's a gentleman named Brian Borgman. He'll be coming for our essentials. Um, Ron chuckled at me because there was a couple times I'm laying in bed listening to it, and he's like, is he your new man crush? I was like, no, no, babe. You are my only man crush because that's what I teased him. You know, Noah Webster, now it's Cotton Mather. Um, but he said, okay, how about preacher crush? I was like, okay, I'll give you that. He's probably my new preacher crush. So, but Brian Borman is a gentleman out in, um, in Nevada. He is a preacher. He was one of Ron's seminary professors. 
um, just loves the Lord and has a great sermon series on this passage in particular. Um, he did it phrase by phrase by phrase, and I'm going, ah, okay, I'm going to take you everything I learned from him and squish it down and give it to you guys. But um, a lot of what I'll be saying is not original with me, so I want to give credit to where credit is due. A lot of what I'm going to be saying is learned directly from Brian Borgman. <laughs> but one thing that I sat here and I really wanted to do the three lettuces, but then I was like, oh, that's kind of corny. But then he did it, and I was like, well, if it's good enough for Brian Borgman, it's good enough for me. So, and he chuckled and said, I could tell you that these are horatory subjunctives, but you'll remember it a lot better if I just say the three lettuces. So I would say the same. So this is a very corporate passage. <clears throat> if you're looking through it, over and over, the writer is using us, we, us, we. So this is corporately. We're going to think through these things. Are we going to apply it directly to ourselves? Yes but done with the thought pattern of these are my sisters, these are my eternal family. We're doing this together. So number one on your outlines, we are going to look at that first lettuce. Number one is let us draw near. Now this writer, one thing that makes me go, oh, maybe this was Paul. There's a couple things that don't make me think it's Paul, but the way he uses let me give you a phrase, phrase, frame, working up to my first point, and then let me give you phrase that points back, phrase that points back. I, I call Paul the king of clauses. I said, Ron, you're, you're a close second, but, but Paul is the king of clauses. He loves those. Let me tell you why I'm going to say what I'm going to say, then I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to tell you why I said it. So um, I absolutely love it. Not sure. Um, and then it makes me go, hmm, maybe it was Luke, because Luke was a close companion of Paul and learned from Paul. So we won't know till maybe, maybe heaven. That would, that would be great to find out. But anyways, the let us draw near. A, <laughs> we're going to start with the provided path. The provided path. So ladies, one thought pattern we always need to start with when we're thinking let us draw near the question that should bother every man every woman every child how do i dare draw near when i am sinful and he is holy why would i dare approach the throne of the living god even the seraphim shield their eyes from his presence. And yet I would dare to approach the throne in his majesty, in his gloriousness. So Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, ladies, what do we always need to ask ourselves when we're reading our scriptures and we see the word therefore? What is it therefore? Very good. So the therefore there points back all the way from chapters 8 verse 1 to 1019. The writer's unfolding the blessings of the new covenant and lays out the doctrines that bleed into the exhortation that he's going to give us in verses 10 through 25. 
So you have to have a correct doctrine first that bleeds out to correct application of that doctrine. So we go back to the pinnacle of this argument. Go ahead and flip a couple pages back to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm just going to read verse 1, but I think it's important to see this because Hebrews writer himself, <coughs> excuse me, says, now the main point, Simon, chapter 8, verse 1, now the main point and what has been said is this. Okay, y'all, it's not often in scripture a writer is kind enough to say, I'm about to tell you my main point. So this is fabulous. So what's the main point? We have such a high priest. He's been laying out the priesthood. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens? So you might be asking, this is wonderful. Who is this great priest? <clears throat> Excuse me, high priest. Great priest in our passage. Look down to Hebrews 9.11. So next chapter. Hebrews 9.11 <clears throat> and into 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered to the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then drop down to verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. So here, over and over again, he's reiterating the once for all sacrifice that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets, the sacrificial system. He's saying, guys, he did it. It is done. No more blood. No more sacrifices. It's been fulfilled. Now, number one, the amazing thought, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We have confidence to enter the holy place. That word confidence there means free and fearless confidence. Cheerful courage. I love that. Cheerful courage. Boldness. Assurance. So, and it immediately made me think of one of my favorite verses, which is also in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16. Many of you know it by heart. Therefore, let us draw near, same word, with confidence, same word, cheerful courage, to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So... Oftentimes, it's easy for us as new covenant believers to glaze over the words, enter the holy place. So we need to remember kind of our Jewish heritage, meaning what did this mean to that audience? 
because to them, this is revolutionary to be able to enter the holy place. So it's good for us to think the tabernacle only had one entrance. Upon entering, a priest would, would be in the holy place where there were three articles of furniture. One was the golden lampstand, which was to be kept burning continually, giving light to the holy place. The second article of furniture in the holy place was a table for the bread of presence, or the table of showbread. This bread was baked fresh every week, and only the priests were allowed to eat of it, as it was holy as well. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of both these symbols as the light of the world and the bread of life. The final article in the holy place was the altar of incense. Special incense was to be burned each morning and evening as an offering to the Lord. Remember, if they got this wrong, what happened to Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire? The Lord killed them. So the holy place was set apart or holy because it was a special representation and reminder of the presence of God. At the back of the holy place was a smaller chamber called what? All right, just making sure you're uh, coming along with me. Holy of Holies or most holy place. In this smaller room was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark was a special area called the Mercy Seat. This was seen as the throne of God. While God is omnipresent, this location was seen as a special place for God to dwell in the middle of his people. This second chamber could only be entered by the high priest on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, and only with a blood sacrifice. The high priest would enter the most holy place with smoke from the altar of incense to help shield his view and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. Anyone who entered this chamber when he was not supposed to would be killed. The tabernacle and the temple emphasized the presence of God in the midst of his people. God was always there and accessible. At the same time, the holy place and the most holy place emphasized God's holiness and his inaccessibility due to the sins of the people. So you have to remember, what does this mean to a Jewish person to actually tell them, enter the holy place? He immediately would say, oh, no, no. I don't do that. That's only for the priest and the most holy place. Never, except for the high priest at a certain time, once a year. It was a very sacred thing. You have to remember their entire lives are built around the feasts, the sacrifices, the worship at the tabernacle, and then later on the temple. Their entire nation was built around this. Their calendar, their lives, their very beings was all centered around the worship of Yahweh as he had commanded. And that was good and right with the old covenant. But all of a sudden, Christ has come. He has broken it. He has fulfilled it. He has proclaimed, I am the Messiah, the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. So we can have confidence to enter the holy place. But ladies, how can this be? Our verse tells us, and it's A on your outlines, by Christ's blood. <clears throat> Again, their whole lives, these people have brought lambs for a sacrificial system. Now, again, we are not agricultural society, so a lot of us, we're not around bleeding out animals for food. We're not around any of that. I personally am very thankful we no longer have to bring blood, the goats, the bulls, the pigeons, the birds, none of that as sacrifices. Did any of you bring a lamb this last uh, Sunday? No. I am very thankful we live in the new covenant where that has been fulfilled. But we need to remember, Brian Borgman said, the only reason God could truly say, I will remember your sins no more, is if he had a perfect atoning sacrifice, which we do only through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you, if you look down at Hebrews 10 again, but farther up in the passage in verse 4, it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then drop down to verse 9. Then he said, behold, I have come to, to, to do your will. That's Christ talking. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Verse 10, by this we will have, we, by this will, so the, I have come to do your will, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is not a continuing sacrifice. And then drop down to verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Ladies, this is one of the verses that <laughs> in Catholicism, when you see Christ in their churches, how do they present him? Still on the cross. It was a once for all. No more offering is needed. So according to these verses, we have confidence to enter the holy place by Christ's blood and be on your outlines by a new and living way. By a new and living way. Verse 20 says, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, that word inaugurated there means to initiate, consecrate, dedicate, and it can imply to open. This is fascinating to me when you read Matthew 27, 50, and 51. Just listen. And Jesus, cri Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Could you imagine being one of the priests serving in the temple that day? 
this guy turns black, and then all of a sudden, the huge veil that separates the holy place and the holy of holies is torn from top to bottom. To be standing there and to witness such an event. Jewish tradition states that the veils before the most holy place were 40 cubits, which is 60 feet long, and 20 cubits, 30 feet wide, and was of the thickness of the palm of the hand. So this was not a light curtain like we hang in our living room. This was a carefully, specifically woven veil. And yet, here it is, torn top to bottom. I love that word living, <coughs> especially when we think the old way depended on the death of animals, but the new way depends on a living Savior. And don't ever, ever, myself included, pass over lightly the words, His flesh, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh in, or in order to be able to open this way between a sinful man and a holy God. All the things that he did for us in this new covenant, it's so easy for us to go, oh yeah, the veil. Oh yeah, of course that's meaning his flesh. And yet, do we deeply consider he took on human flesh so that he could open that way for us. So the message of the new covenant is not a do. The message <laughs> of the new covenant is done. So we don't have a sacrifice to come and do. We don't have feasts to come and do. Do we have remembrances? Of course. But there's nothing to do it's already been done. So we have a new and living way, but we also have a great priest. We're entering by Christ's blood, and we have a great priest. Hebrews 10.21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. This makes me again think of Hebrews 4.14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So O'Brien in his commentary says there's a significant number of verbal parallels between chapter 4 and chapter 10 to point to the fact that the two passages mark the beginning and the end of the discourse on Christ's appointment and work as high priest. So this whole section, he is carefully laying out, again, the Jewish people who have existed to serve God in this way. And now he's laying out for us, it's done, no more. It's finished. Christ has fulfilled it. But he needs to carefully lay this out for them. So in this verse, but what is the house of God? Hebrews 3, 6 
says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house? We are. If we hold fast our confidence, there's that word again, and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So Christ has given this a provided path. We have an open way to direct access to God. This is amazing. And ladies, this is something that we can have great joy in, that God would be pleased that we would be born at a time that the new covenant is free and open, that these things have been accomplished on our behalf. So that provided path is there, and we need that to be able to draw near to God, but we also have a provided preparation. That's B on your outlines. The provided preparation. Look down at verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the drawing near to God is in order to seek his grace and favor. So when we think this thing through carefully, we need to consider drawing near means it kind of implies where were we before we drew near? Far off. So the veil separating the holy place or even think of the Israelite people when they gathered to Mount Sinai and God showed himself and gave them his Ten Commandments. They were to draw near, but no further. What happened if somebody actually went on Mount Sinai besides the people God allowed? Immediately death. You were not to approach Mount Sinai because it was holy, because the Lord God himself was giving his commandments. And yet... Here we are to draw near with confidence, cheerful courage. We are not to shake into fear. We have cheerful courage because what Christ has done for us. So what the law couldn't do, God did through Christ. There was always separation, but now again, Hebrews 4, 16 Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, ladies, as we consider this, I want to ask you, how do you draw near to God? There are some different ways that we can come. One can be fearful. And when I say fearful, I am not saying the respectful awe that Yvonne has talked about, but that craven, servile fear. Brian Borgman said, if you are too overwhelmed by the magnitude of your sin when drawing near, instead of being overwhelmed by God, excuse me, instead of being overwhelmed by who God is and then, blah, I'm going to start over. Let's rewind that. So if you are too overwhelmed by the magnitude of your sin when drawing near instead of being overwhelmed by who God is, 
then you are making much of your sin and not making much of God or Christ's sacrifice. You are making too much of yourself and you need to be making more of the living God. Thomas Boston said, guilt is the mother and the nurse of fear. And I thought that was very helpful. So we have guilt. Yes, we are guilty, but how are we coming? What is our provided path to draw near? It is Christ's blood. It is his new and living way. And we recognize that he has provided it. Our guilt is gone. We need to trust that he has provided this way. So if we were constantly thinking back to our past sin, how could I have done such a thing? We need to rejoice in what a great God I have, that he would forgive. Ladies, this is something I have struggled with. And the Lord has given grace. In my younger years, I was very captured by the thought of if I just pay enough penance, if I beat myself up enough, maybe God will be okay with me again. That's part of, I think that was an outworking of some of the um, legalism that I grew up in. This is, my tears are because shame of, of not upholding my savior and trusting that here he is holding out forgiveness to me, and yet I'm going, no, Christ, I just, I did too many bad things. There's no way you could forgive me. Of course you would forgive somebody else because they're sweet and wonderful, but not me. I was too bad. Ladies, that's blasphemous. I am refusing sacrifice of Christ on my behalf, how dare I? We should rejoice at the forgiveness freely given at the cross. We need to trust. How would you feel if your child came to you, truly repented, and then the next day stayed far away from you, wouldn't look you in the eye, acted afraid of you, and you say, honey, I forgave you. It's, it's okay, I love you. Our relationship is restored. Thank you for repenting. And it happened again and again, and they wouldn't look you in the eye, and they won't talk to you, and they won't receive that forgiveness. Oh, ladies, let's not treat the Lord in the same manner. Let's joyfully receive the forgiveness he gives. Let's hold it close to our hearts and help that be the motivation of our heart when we draw near. That we trust, Lord, you say in your word, 1 John 1, 9, you are faithful and just to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I need to confess it. So it's not a turning a blind eye to sin. That is absolutely not. Ladies, a Christian repents and repents and repents again. Not salvific, 
but in sanctification. We repent once at salvation. That is our justification. But that continuing, identifying sin in our life, wanting to kill it, going to God, saying, God, I agree with you about that sin. I repent. I turn away. I hate and forsake it because it's displeasing to you. That is the kind of heart that we should have as we're drawing near. Not a craven fear. Ladies, we can even struggle with anxiety in our spiritual lives. We need to be very careful. Is this true guilt where I have a sin I need to confess? Or am I holding on to guilt from past sins, not trusting that Christ has forgiven me? And not trusting his word when he says, I remove it as far as the east is from the west. These are the things I want you to think through. And not, it's so easy to slip back into that mode of thinking. Well, I just need to make it up enough and it'll be okay again. No, it's legalism. You don't do. It's been done. This is not a do. It's done. So we rejoice in the doneness. Of our, of our Savior. He has done it. I don't brazenly come before the throne because I'm good enough. I rejoice. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll tell you later. Okay, so we could become fearful. We can come as a formalist, meaning it's just a duty. This is just something, someone who draws near to check it off their list. There's no deep love for Christ, no deep consideration for the provided path and the preparation that's been done for us. It's just, we would like a sense of accomplishment and successful time management. I did it today. I'm done. This is great. We need to be very, very careful not to be fearful, not to be a formalist, just fulfilling a duty. Number three, we need to be careful not to be a hypocrite. These are not on your outline. This is just extra and for free. Sorry. I was like, ooh, I'm saying numbers and it's not on your outline. I'm sorry for the confusion. So, but the third way, that's how I should say it. The third way could be possibly as a hypocrite. You smile and you sing when Michelle's up here leading us and Nancy or Donna are playing for us. But your heart's very far away been thinking about the Lord. You listen to sermons from Chris week after week, but your life is rarely changed by them. You're here, you have a form of godliness, but your heart is not engaged. You're thinking more about your to-do list of what to do on Sunday after you get done instead of honing in. This is corporate worship. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are here to worship the living God together. This is a treasure. This is amazing. The hypocrite often will come. Again, we'll smile, we'll sing, we'll do the things, but again, is not transformed by the word. We want to guard our hearts from that. We want to be able to worship him in truth. 
So the fourth way we could draw near is with that cheerful confidence. We come before the Lord. So this is the one I was getting to. We come before the Lord saying, I know I bring nothing good in and of myself, but praise God, I stake all my claim on Jesus' blood and righteousness. So this, ladies, is how we are to draw near. So the first part of the provided preparation is number one on your outlines, with a sincere heart. Verse 22 there. Oh, I've got to hurry. Verse 22 there, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. So, is drawing near your passion? Is it your heartbeat? Sincere there is singular in purpose and single of intent. Now, we do not naturally have a sincere heart. We are provided with a sincere heart by Christ himself. Back in Ezra 36, 26, it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So that phrase, in full assurance of faith there. Again, I just want to remind you, our focus often is not on who Christ is and what he has done, but on our sin and what we have done. Ladies, do you often talk yourself out of your assurance of salvation? Yes, we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, but do you become so morbidly introspective that you just wallow right there? I just don't know, I just don't know, I just don't know. Ladies, that's a temptation for you to get stuck. Can you grow? If you just stay right there, I just don't know if I'm a believer. I just don't know. I just don't know. What is that? It's unbelief of God's word. Lord, help my unbelief. He is the one to cry out to. But ladies, don't allow your heart and your mind to get stuck there. Can you reach out? Can you grow? If all you're doing is looking inward and not looking upward, that is where we need to focus our mind. If we sit there and we doubt God's goodness or his love or his ability to work in us and through us, we just wallow in indecisiveness, the indecisiveness of knowing whether we're a true Christian or not, instead of simply trusting what God has said. Again, this can be another state of that spiritual anxiety. I just don't know. So Brian Boardman says, my redemption by God cannot change, but my experience of it can. The promises of God don't change, but my laying hold of those promises can. Assurance doesn't start on how I feel. It starts at the truth of Christ and him crucified. Instead, we want to continue to feel miserable over a past life of sin. <laughs> so, okay, ladies, we want to feel miserable? Okay. How about five minutes? Is that enough time? Ten? Is that enough time for our own personal purgatories? No. Or we can... Now, I do, I do want to say we should be brokenhearted, so don't hear me say we should be brokenhearted over our sin and the fact that we grieve the Holy Spirit. But God doesn't look at us and say, okay, 
she's finally broken hearted enough, now I'll grant her full assurance of faith. That's not how that works. So, um, Brian Borman did a really helpful illustration. He said, think back to the Passover, the very first one. They're spreading the blood over the doorpost. You have one firstborn son that gets up from his bed and he comes to his father because what's supposed to happen to the firstborn if the blood is not on the doorpost? The angel of death is coming. So the firstborn son comes to his father and says, Father, am I going to be okay? And so the father takes him and shows him the blood and says, yes, the Lord has commanded us. The blood is there. You are safe. And so the firstborn son goes to bed and sleeps until morning. There's a second son comes to the father, says, Father, am I going to be okay? The father takes him, shows him the blood. Yes, God has commanded us. The blood is on the doorpost. You will be okay. And 10 minutes later, the son comes again. Father, are you sure? Do we have enough? Are you sure? Yes, son. But God has commanded. We have obeyed what he has commanded. It's enough. And he comes 10 minutes again. And 10 minutes again. Are you sure I'm going to be okay? Are you sure? Both the promises were true. Both the fulfillment of the promises came past. But the laying hold of that promise was very different in both those examples. Ladies, we need to lay hold of the promises of God. That is how we treat our anxious hearts. Lay hold on God's word. If assurance eludes you, this is Brian again. If assurance eludes you, spend time meditating on Christ's work for you. He said, I love this. If your assurance is not bothering you enough to bother to meditate, then it's not bothering you enough. So I just love him. He's a very straight shooter. So if you are needing a resource for meditation on Christ's work for you, I highly recommend the Gospel Primer or Primer, whichever you want to say it. So um, we did have some on the book table. Where's my Jen? Do you know? Jen, scream it out. Do we have some? There you are, hon. I know. Poor Jen. I keep on like popping like, you know, all things, Jen. So if we don't and you are interested in one, contact us. We will make sure you lay hands on one. It's excellent. So we're to draw near with a sincere heart. And also number two in your outlines, having two things. <coughs> having two things. A, internal cleansing. And B, external cleansing. Cleansing. Oh, that was at the bottom. So internal cleansing and external cleansing. Look down at the end of verse 22. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure word. So that heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience um, links back to, again, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. So that's that internal cleansing. God is the one preparing us to draw near. 
So, and then with that external cleansing, Brian Borgman, he said, I wouldn't die in this hill, but I do believe this may refer to the believer's baptism. And then O'Brien himself, which was a commentary, says baptism belongs to the new covenant and is accompanied by the reality it symbolizes. The sprinkling of the heart denotes an inward and spiritual cleansing, while the washing of our bodies with pure water is the outward visible sign. So the first command is let us draw near using that provided path with the provided preparation. But the second thing we need to do is let us hold fast. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises is faithful. That hold fast means keep secure keep firm possession of. So we need to ask ourselves, we need to hold fast what, how, and why. So A on your outlines, the what is our confession of hope. That confession of hope is the substance of our profession, which we embrace with hope. Now hope is not, I hope it stays sunny today. I hope you know, uh, I'll get to go to church on Sunday. No, again, it's that confidence. We have assurance. We have hope because God has said it is so. So we need to hold fast. How are we supposed to hold fast? What does that verse say? Without wavering. That means not incline, inclining, firm, unmoved, un bending not stubborn but I'm bending we hold fast the confession of our hope why because we are strong no because he has promised and he is faithful so that's the C on your outlines he has promised and he is faithful ladies we hold fast because we are held by him and his promise. So hold fast is intention with being held. But the truths do not negate each other. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have put, become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. And then this also brings to mind the parable back in Luke 4, excuse me, the parable of the four soils in Luke 8. So it said in the good soil, the seed in the good soul, soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now what happened to all the other seeds? It's snatched away, it's choked out by thorns, it's choked out, it's dried out and withers. So the thorns and the withers soils it springs up, but then it dies. But the good soil, this is a good and honest heart, holding it fast and bearing fruit with perseverance. So we have seen how we are, I'm sorry, I've got to blaze through this. We have seen how we are to draw near and how we are to hold fast to our confession. And now we can come to our last head of lettuce. Number three, let us consider. Verse 24 said, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 
I love that word consider. It means to fix one eyes or mind upon. And two, the Greek construction here, it's hard to tell in the NASB, but the Greek construction here, the emphasis is consider one another. Yes, we have the how to stimulate to, to love and good works. Um, it would probably be better read, let us consider one another how to stimulate to love and good deeds. So, but the consideration is not how to stimulate. The consideration is I'm considering my brothers and sisters around me. Because again, let's not lose sight of the fact of the let us. This is corporate. This is us together as a body of believers. The let us draw near. Let us hold fast. We are holding fast to these things together. We are ironing, sharpening iron. Now we are to consider A on your outline, how to stimulate. Stimulate there means an incitement or to provoke. Now, lest you get the wrong idea, this is provoking unto love. So I get the idea of we're poking each other. Poke. Come on. Poke. So, but it's not done to irritate. It's done to encourage. This is very positive. This is not a, we, we provoke each other in order to criticize, to judge. This is a positive, uplifting thing. This is not me going, one of you going to Yvonne and saying, mm, Rachel over there, she's not encouraging others to love and deeds. You should go talk to her and encourage her in that. No. We don't accuse, we don't cut down. That's not the focus of this passage. Now, is there correct biblical encouragement in this? Sometimes encompassing a rebuke, you're encouraging somebody to do something they're not doing before. Yes. And we also need to be humble to take that, to consider what another person is telling you. Oh, I'll think about that. Is there wisdom in this? Of course, but it doesn't mean we don't. So what are we supposed to poke each other at? What is that provocation unto love? I'm, well, I'm jumping ahead. Number one, to love. And then number two, to good deeds. I do find this fascinating where before we were looking in our preparation that it was internal and external. I do find it fascinating here the outworking is love, internal, and good deeds, often external. So just a, a, a fascinating correlation. Now, ladies, if you are struggling with what does that mean, love, that word love, uh, how do I show that biblically? Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. It's an excellent passage to meditate on if you're struggling with but what does that look like? Super practical, super um, helpful when thinking about biblical love. And then the good deeds. Hebrews 6.10 said, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. So here again, we see that balance of love and good deeds and ministering to the saints. 
So ladies, why do we sometimes need to be provoked into loving and good deeds? Well, a lot of times, my own sin, short circuits, my desire for wanting to love and wanting to pour out good deeds to others. Or sometimes our own pride blinds us to the opportunities around us. That's why we need each other to poke each other, kind of wake each other up and go, oh, I didn't realize. Oh, that is an opportunity. This can be as simple as, hey, I heard so-and-so is in the hospital. Would you want to come with me and visit them and pray with them, if you're allowed? Or would you like to, let's get together and bake a meal and take it over to them. I've heard so-and-so is struggling. Let's go visit them and pray together with them. This is a corporate. And, and for us personally, I'm going to say this is a sisterhood. We are sticking together. We're drawing each other in, saying, come with me. Come do this with me. We're stimulating. We're being good examples. We're mindful. Church is not all about me. Church is not about, well, no one ministered to me. No one talked to me. They didn't sing my favorite song. Right? Chris isn't, you know, he's cool and all, but he's not warm and fuzzy like my last pastor was. Right? No, it's not all about me. Chris is a great guy, by the way. That is not a down on him. But we need to start thinking. Look outward. How am I doing this? Am I considering? This takes time, ladies. This takes effort. This is not a waltzing into church on Sunday. Now, I understand the struggle that that can be. Trying to get everybody there and alive and without arguing is nigh on miraculous. But we strive for it. That is our goal. And as we walk into this church building on a Sunday, are you thinking, how can I reach out to others? How can I make others welcome? How can I serve others in the midst of the chaos of trying to struggle through, praise God, a, a bigger foyer now, but just in the passing and then throughout the week? How can I encourage my sisters around me? That's why we love our small groups. That whole list that Johnny Mac has in our chapter, totally down the line. That's what we want you guys doing. Use those gifts. <laughs> Do those ministries to each other. It's a beautiful thing. So, okay, so not forsaking. Um, so we have two love, two good deeds, and then be on your outlines, not forsaking. I think we've all learned the value of physically being together. I had friends who came with me to church because their churches were not meeting. And afterwards, they were like, Rachel, it was so great just to hear people singing together to hear the word in person, what an encouragement. So ladies, I think we all value it, but let us not quickly forget. Let us not quickly forsake that again. Just like the Jews centered their entire lives around the sacrificial system, the temple, we need to build our entire lives around who did Christ give his life for? For his church. So who... 
Who should we give our lives for? Well, if we're following Christ, we need to lay down our lives for his church, the building up of his church. And two, C, <coughs> we're not forsaking, but we're encouraging. Now, again, let's remember, what are they going through right now in this time frame? That persecution under Nero. So, of course, many were very, very afraid. Talk about anxiety and fear, if that's what you're facing. And yet, he says, don't forsake, but encourage each other. So are we, I'm sorry, let's read verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So ladies, are we considering these things? The let us draw near, the let us hold fast, the let us, um, incur, let us consider. Are we considering these things with an eye on the coming day when our great high priest will come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you just for these dear ladies and their attention this morning. I pray that you would help us consider one another to love and good deeds, that we would think of each other's first, that we would pour out our lives for your church, knowing you are coming one day. And we long to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, might we hold fast to the hope of our confession. Might we draw near with cheerful confidence, knowing that Christ has paved the way. We thank you, thank you for that provision. It's in Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.